This is Late to the Party, Episode 5. Hello, and welcome to Late to the Party, Episode 5. This is the Geeks Unleashed monthly book club podcast. Uh, in addition to our weekly podcast, where we work through some of what is considered the most essential graphic novels of all time. This month's graphic novel is book one, is March book one by John Lewis, Andrew Iden, and Nate Powell. Well, I'm Mark. Um... And I'm Jasmine. And we are joined this week by our guest host, Deborah Taylor. Say hey, Deborah. Hello. Hello, hello everyone. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Deborah is a celebrity, okay? She oh, is yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> she is famous in uh, scholarly and library circles. Uh, Ms. Deborah Taylor had received her BA and her master's from the University of Maryland in College Park. She's also the recipient of the Coretta Scott King Virginia Hamilton Practitioner Award for Lifetime Achievement from the American Library Association. And she has served as president of the Young Adult Library Services Association and the chair of the Coretta Scott King Book Awards. She's also a member of the Voice of Youth Advocates Editorial Advisory Board. And she has recently retired uh, as coordinator of school and student services at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. So thank you so much for being with us, Deborah. It is truly my pleasure. I love to talk about books. So the book that we are reviewing is March volume one, uh, which was written by John Lewis and Andrew Iden, and the art is by Nate Powell. It's originally published in 2013 by Top Shelf, which is an imprint of IDW Publishing. March is a trilogy that spans Congressman John Lewis's lifelong fight for civil rights and the role he played in the civil rights movement in the United States. Book one covers Lewis's youth, and it's a New York Times bestseller, Washington Post bestseller, National Book Award, Coretta Scott King Book Award winner, Robert F. Kennedy Book Award winner, and Eisner winner. There's won a lot of awards there. Um, <laughs> so. so, Deborah, our first question for you before we started, uh, uh, when we first, when you first agreed to be on this episode with us, you sent us a picture of you with John Lewis and Nate Powell with the book March. So, can you tell us how that whole uh, scenario came about? That was actually with March three. And um, he had just won, because March won a lot of awards, but March 3, which concluded the trilogy, won practically every award that, it, that came out that the year it came out. And so he was everywhere at the American Library Association annual conference, because that's when we do all of the celebrations. That's when people get their actual awards and they give speeches. And you know there are lots of luncheons and uh, other events where people can kind of come and celebrate the great achievement. And that happened to be a Coretta Scott King Book Awards luncheon that um, he, was, he was there because they had received the award and they were, we were all there, all the various committees were there and that was how that picture came to be. And I had gone over to talk to him because you know, I'm a huge fan and um, it just so happened that we were, we were gonna be seated at the same table. And while we were talking, uh, Nate came up and that's how we got the picture with, with the three of us. So it was quite an experience. It's really one of the highlights. He um, had also spoken at my library in the past before I retired. Um, he was married to a librarian. So he had a real connection to books and libraries and 
I love to hear him tell stories about that. So that's how that that came to be. Wow. <laughs> it, it seems like the book captured his personality pretty well. Um, when the book starts off, it kind of starts off in present day, um, where he's sort of in his office right before the inauguration of Barack Obama as the 44th president. But just kind of the feel of him being in his office, he, uh, uh, you know, a woman brings her two kids by from his old, uh, his district, and she's just kind of like, I, you know, I was here for the inauguration, and I wanted to just show them your office. I didn't expect you to be here. And he's so gracious in the book. Um, and he, you know, he gives these little kids this, you know, story of his life. And um, I just thought that was really interesting. And it seems like that's, that's actually the kind of person he was in his everyday life then. Yeah, and I think... Um... You know, when he was making the rounds with, with March, and March for all three volumes, particularly for the concluding one, he went everywhere. He went to schools, he went to all kinds of places. I remember seeing a picture of a little kid dressed as, as John Lewis, you know, with the backpack and the trench coat, you know, all of the images that you see. And he just loved that. I mean, he <laughs> had a real connection with young people. And I think it's so interesting because I think one of the reasons March get, gets a, his personality across is because, you know, many of us have seen these images and things like Eyes on the Prize or on different newsreels, any kind of history of the civil rights movement, the movie Selma. So we feel like we know these images in a lot of ways. And I think that's one of the reasons it works so very well. And, you know, it's uh, it, so just a little personal story for me. When I was 11 years old, I was part of a community center here, uh, summer between fifth grade and sixth grade. And we did what they call a freedom tour. So we spent a week on a bus and we hit up just about every major civil rights site in the South from here to Georgia, up to Tennessee, to Arkansas, and then back. Um, and we actually watched eyes on the prize and then we marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and I think that's uh there was there was an issue of March before the first release where it was a part of free comic book day so mm -hmm. it was just a, a free floppy issue a single issue where it kind of did like a, a a mini summary of all all three of the books um and I remember being so struck by that because it was the first time that I had seen something as like a non-fiction piece in in comic form but something that also like i related to so heavily because it was like I've, I've i've marched across that bridge like I, I have been there i have seen that mm -hmm. um and so i i think i get what you're saying when when it's like you see people that are kind of dressed like you or or people who feel like they they understand kind of the history behind it because they have they've been there or they or they've walked it um, so it's, it's, it was a unique experience for me just kind of reading through this book because it's like, oh, and I had to stop myself from reading volumes two and three. I have, I have all three, but I was like, no, cause if I read all of them, I'm not going to be able to keep them straight. And then I'm going to talk about all the books instead of just the first one. Um, but I, I think it's so interesting that, that he started so young, so to speak. It, it's kind of like he, when almost like a, the point in the book where his uncle takes him up to Ohio and that you know that the few weeks that he spent in Ohio kind of changed his life because he it was the first time he kind of saw the difference in the way that people are treated you know in the south versus what it was like up in Ohio where where his uncle and aunt were um but I think what you say is, is really so relevant because 
I think when you when you look at a personality like a John Lewis, you can see all of these various components because you do ask yourself, why him? Mm-hmm. You know, other people were sons of sharecroppers and other people had, you know, endured the kinds of things that, that you know, he endured. What was it that made him decide that he would try for something better mm-hmm. and not just for himself, but for his whole community? Yeah. So yeah. I think that episode you talk about with him going up to Ohio with his uncle, um, that's one of the things that went into um, that development of him becoming the person that he became. Um, the other thing that I think about is, because I just watched the uh, Henry Louis Gates documentary on the Black church. And, you know, that whole episode in there where he's preaching to the chickens. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you realize, um, yeah, it was a training ground. Mm-hmm. for people like him. And of course, you know, he had gone up to um, Nashville to go to seminary. So all of these were things that were a part of who he was. But, um, and then there's that, you know, it's like alchemy. There's something intangible about what makes a John Lewis. Right. And, Is a, oh, yeah. I was going to say, like, um, you know, you say that, like he comes across from such a young age, even rebelling against his parents just to go to school. Yes. Uh, like, and, you know, like kids, like, you know, I mean, at the moment, my kids have been homeschooled because of um, the lockdowns, the schools are closed. But when they announced that the schools were going to close, both my kids started crying because they want to go to school. Like, but not every child has that enthusiasm to learn. And, you know, and, and it's quite admirable that John Lewis, obviously at quite a young age, was was sort of sneaking out under the house and running, running to get on the school bus. And yeah. so there's something in him from a young age to, to be different. So, um, and that's hard so. to replicate too, because you can't, it's like you can't put that feeling into someone else. That's so right. all you can do with it is tell, keep telling your story in the hopes that your story is going to eventually resonate with someone else. Um, but yeah, the, the, the fact that he knew he had a bigger purpose than being a farmer, not that he ever looked down on farming or anything like that, but he knew that it wasn't for him and to defy your parents and to knew that you were going to get in trouble and likely get a beaten when you got home. I just, uh, that really, really endeared this whole book to me because like, I, I love learning so like I can totally relate to like I would much rather go to school than like help out on a farm. <laughs> so I totally yeah. get that. Yeah. And I think there was a sense um, among people um, in the rural South, especially among African Americans, that you know once you you got into that that life, that there was no way out. It wasn't mm-hmm. like oh, I'm going to farm for a little while and then I'll go to college. It, it you know you just had to be on a particular trajectory that took you away from. Um, the one that was mapped out for him. Mm-hmm. And um, so for him to recognize that at an early enough age for it to make a difference really comes across in the book. The other thing that, that you, re- you realize is that there was a comic book about Dr. King. Really? Um, yes. And I think that I think that at some point they talk about it, they make a mention of it. But um, that was one, and I think that was one that Andrew Aiden kind of brought to him and said, we can do this, you know, we could do this. But I think he had seen something like that about Mm -hmm. Dr. King. And, um, you know, he knew it resonated with him. So um, he knew that he wanted to see something like that. So I think there were all these different kind of pieces, you know, that kind of of meshed together Mm -hmm. that um, put him on that path. But you're right, he was awfully young. He was awfully young to do what he did. 
Yeah, I, he was very young to be so so sure of his future, which I mean, it's it's great to see. It's that's a that's a very rare thing to see, especially in, I mean, even you don't even see that in adults sometimes, you know. That's right. That's right. Um, but I I think like the the part where he went to Ohio, saw something different, and came back. I think the whole pers- the, the whole idea of being able to separate yourself from a situation and look at it from a different angle is a gift. It's not something that everyone has the opportunity to do. Um, and you as a librarian, um, I did you ever kind of feel like as a librarian, it's kind of your job to sort of, if a kid comes to you or even if an adult comes to you and they're like, I like X, do you have any recommendations about X? And I think the simple act of asking a question of, I'm curious about this, where can I go to learn more about the thing that I'm curious about? Um, because I think that, that that sort of opening of perspectives, and especially with libraries, for people who don't have access to funds to buy books, you can just go to a library to borrow the books, but you can still transport yourself from your everyday situation to somewhere you know far off and fantastical. I think when, um, when I was, and I worked with teens when I was in the library, and um, when we ever we would get a teenager who would come and knew that what they were interested in, that was like, oh my gosh, the heavens opened and you know, <laughs> they, they would have to avoid you after that. Because they, <laughs> you'd be waiting for, by the door for them to come in <laughs> with all kinds of stuff. But I think for many kids, the best thing was always to try to expose them to as many things as possible because so many young people don't know yet. They don't know what they're interested in. They don't know what they're passionate about yet. And um, they think I'm just listening to music or I'm just playing, I'm just out here with my, hanging out with my friends or I'm watching, I'm doing video games or maybe I'm reading graphic novels. A lot of kids in, in the library just before I retired, that was a huge big thing was that we had a great collections of graphic novels that they mm-hmm. wanted to, to spend time with. But so many young people don't know, and um, they don't even know how to formulate that question. So it was trying to expose them to as many things as possible, uh, programs, speakers, opportunities. Um, you get a glimpse of a, com- a little bit of a conversation that kids were talking about and try to turn that into a program mm-hmm. so that you could show them that however, whatever little sliver of interest there was, it was a way to pursue it. Even if it meant that, oh, this isn't what I want to do. Because that's is almost as important as knowing right. what you do want to do. So that was a really important part of the job. And I also did that um, in my church before COVID locked us all down. We used to take kids on trips like you described, mm-hmm. you know, the freedom um, trails. We would take them to visit um, colleges in the South. And we would also include historic sites. So, you know, just giving as much exposure. And I think that trip, that John Lewis took yes. in that same vein mm-hmm. um, to give you another perspective, to put something else in there. It might not take root right away, but maybe it will down the road. And right, it's planting a seed. It's planting a seed and <clears throat> connection down the road. And that's what you really wanna do when you care mm-hmm. about young people is to do plant as many seeds as possible. And I think what struck me probably the most about his preteen years were I mean, what kid decides that they want to be a preacher? And in order to practice, you're preaching to the chickens who obviously cannot like talk back. But right. just the fact that he tried it 
I, I think I want to do this. I'm going to try it. And then, so it went from, I'm, I'm preaching to the chickens to, oh my gosh, we got this 16 year old kid now and we're going to let him be, you know, the guest preacher at the church for the day. Um, and it turns, that turns into, well, what if I want to go to a different college? What if I don't want to go to the college that you told me I have to go to? What if I want to go to this one? Because I know that the opportunities that are going to come will be better if I have this on my resume, so to speak. Right. And it just progressively as as we get through this first book he's always trying something he's like okay i'm gonna i, I want to preach okay i'm gonna try it uh i, I want to go to a different college oh, they won't let me in okay well how do i how do i get in do i sue them okay how do i sue them oh well i gotta go talk to dr martin luther king Fine, let's let's do that and, and make this work so just like he's so enterprising in mm-hmm. in his pursuits of i want this how do i get this and if i can't have it how can I make it so that not only I can have it, but everybody can have it? I think Dr. King recognized that. Remember he said, are you the boy from Troy? Yes. Yeah, and yeah. It's just that he, I think he recognized this kind of drive in, in him. And um, even though he knew that, and they were very clear of what doing that kind of lawsuit would mean, mm-hmm. um, potentially not just for his family, but for the, for the whole community. Right. And um, so I think one of the things that people fail to realize is how violent it was mm-hmm. um, and how um, the violence was, you know, it was kind of, you didn't know when to expect it. You didn't right. know what was going to trigger um, someone seeking retaliation or someone thinking you were doing something you shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, and I think that was a big fear and it kind of kept it certainly kept him from pursuing, you know, that yeah. lawsuit. But uh, yeah, I think his his drive and his the way of being um, was apparent to anybody who came into contact with him, including Dr. King. Yeah, and I mean, it, I think of all of all the personality traits that he displays in in just the first book alone, that one was the one that kind of jumped out the most to me. It's just like he saw something and. If he couldn't get there, then he he didn't want to just make sure he could get there. He wanted to make sure that there was a path open behind him so that other people could do the same thing. Um, and I think that's that's probably, well, it should be anyway. It's not always the case, but that, that should be probably your number one tenant to become a public servant in the first place. You're yeah. not just opening the door for yourself. You're opening a door and then you're putting a stopper there so that that door stays open for people to come behind you to continue to have access to the things that you have access to. One of the things that um, criticisms of, of um, people in the movement has been that they were they didn't really hand off to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Nobody would ever say that about John Lewis because yeah. um, you know the two both of the two new senators from Georgia had been mentored by him. Mm-hmm. Um, the young lady who took over his seat had been mentored by him. He always made sure. Um, and of course, the two young men who worked on March were, you know, they were very young. I think one of them was his aide. And, um, you know, he just really had that ability to make sure that whatever he had, he wanted to pass it, make sure there was someone else to pick it up, mm-hmm. um, to pass it on. Um, he was never going to just go through by himself. It's always going to be with somebody. Yeah. Keeping the door open for others to come after. And you can see that in the first book, because there's a point uh, toward the end of the first book where, 
they get to it's after they kind of started the sit-ins and and that sort of thing when they're in college and some of the prominent preachers in the south kind of were trying to tell them to stop doing this and at one point he's just kind of like and that was when it hit me that we have to not only fight against you know the the white oppressors but now we got to fight against the church because you guys aren't on our train either um and i think that that to to be able to recognize that in both in your outside sphere and in your inner circle that takes that takes a super special kind of person because it's you know it's not always easy to kind of go against the people that are supposed to that are quote unquote supposed to be there for you um so i thought that was also a vital moment in the book which makes me super excited to keep to keep going but like i said i had to make myself calm down um but yeah i thought it was just really interesting that he recognized it immediately and he was like this is not your mentality is not what's going to get us to the next level. And, yeah. and if that's the case, then we need to find a workaround for you too. And I think it's, it, you know, one of the things that they're very honest about in the book is the generational struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that um, everybody was not always on the same page. You know, there's part of a mythology about um, certain aspects um, in American history and American life is we, we like a nice, neat little story. Yes. So that, you know, here's the, uh, it's like someone said, Dr. King had a dream and then everybody was nice to everybody. You know, it's like, this, these are the kind of mythologies we tell. Mm-hmm. And one of the beauties of a book like March is it shows that people, there was a struggle within as well mm-hmm. as a struggle without, and that people didn't always agree. And that um, sometimes people broke off to do, to, to, because they had different ideas about strategy and about direction. And I think that's so important. Um, young people need to know the truth. They don't need, you know, they can read about Hercules for mythology. They don't need to mythologize the things that are part of their everyday life. So I think they respond to the honesty in this book and in John Lewis's story um, because they don't shy away from things that, you know, are hard to deal with. No, no, no. I was just thinking, you know, we talked a lot about um, his personality and his strength and everything. just thought actually there's a really good line in the book um i wrote it down um he said this um this was a life decision and it was near impossible to turn turn me away from it um and i just thought like that just says a lot about just his personality and his strength and i guess stubbornness as well um his and his drive from you know really like we just said from his young age um you know his demand for educate like his own education and I like you just said as well, you know, you're the boy, you know, from, from Troy. And like, you know, just, um, I just thought it was a really good line in the book. And it just really, and although when you read it, though, he just comes across as such a nice person and, and mm-hmm. you know, anti-violence and everything. But he just has a real strong mm-hmm. well, inner strength. Um, and I thought that one line really just summarised him. And yeah, I think he, he he comes across as a really and he and in, in, in personality, I think he was a very gentle person, but he was also fiercely committed mm-hmm. to as being change and real change, not um, gradual change, but really, really to turn the segregated system upside down. And he was when when they ran into that issue where, like you said, the preachers were like trying to get them to slow down. They, it, it just was impossible. He could mm-hmm. not because it was such so deeply ingrained in him that he had to work to turn this system around that it just was, he had a fierceness about him 
in addition to a gentle spirit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those two things can live in the same person. Yeah. And um, it just comes across that way. Now, Deborah, I noticed that you had put in your notes that uh, that you like the format that the story is told in because you felt like the civil rights movement itself was was sort of a visual experience to yeah. have lived through. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about that kind of thing? Since yeah, you, I, I mean, you have, have a little bit more history than we do. So, did you oh, honey, experience? Oh, I know. He's <laughs> <laughs> seventy next week. Oh my goodness. You don't look a day over 35. Oh, bless your heart. Um, but, but, you know, so a lot of this, you know, one of the things that um, when I read books like March, is you realize, you know, I lived in Baltimore and while we were kind of, we were a Southern city, um, our parents really kept us kind of away from what was going on. I think mm-hmm. there was a sense that they didn't want us to be embittered or they didn't want us to be afraid. You know, um, you saw it didn't really hit us until you began to see it on the six o'clock. In those days, it was just the six o'clock news um, on three stations. And until you began to see that, um, and that's what I mean is that people in this country began to experience it as a very visual um, because it was on the news. Mm -hmm. It was, um, even if it was the March on Washington, it was all of those things were very much uh, a visual experience. And I think that's one of the reasons I think this format works. You know, that we went through a period where, especially African-American kids were kind of bored with having to read about civil rights heroes. You know, they knew every January 15th, they were gonna have to hear, I had a dream, I have a dream. They knew Black History Month, they would hear about Harriet Tubman. But, but, and they would hear about Rosa Parks. And I think that it just, they felt like um, paper cutouts as opposed to real flesh and blood people. And that's what March does. It really does give you a fully well-rounded image of who John Lewis was, what it took for him to do the things that he did and just how young he was Mm -hmm. um, when he began his quest to be a part of a civil rights struggle. So I think that the graphic format, um, especially for the kids of today who live in such a visual world, um, that's another reason the story I think resonates with them um, because it is told in a graphic format. Do you think that it's more important to reach them on their level than it is to, to tell the story that happened? I think it is much more important to find a way to tell the story that makes it personal for them and that engages them. It makes them sit up and take notice because I think the way it's taught in school is it's, it's too far removed from their day-to-day life. And um, we have this idea that, that, oh, we're just gonna, you know, they will, these are heroes and kids get to pick their own heroes whether you tell them somebody's a hero or not. And I think that's one of the reasons why young people kind of flock to John Lewis because he was such an authentic person and March tells that story in such a way that connects with them. And, um, you know, I'm a a huge believer in graphic novels. I I taught uh, young adult literature at the College of Information Studies for a number of years. And when when I first started teaching that course, I taught graphic novels in 
one half of a module. And by the time I finished, I was teaching two modules, which was like two whole units uh-huh. on graphic novels. And still there wasn't enough. <laughs> more. But I mean, it had grown so much and there was such a need to really discuss all aspects of this way it's the storytelling and why it's so important to today's, um, today's readers. Where, what kind of novels were you teaching? Were they fiction or nonfiction or? Oh, I taught, when I taught young adult literature, I taught fiction and nonfiction. I taught narrative nonfiction and informational books for young people, as well as every genre in young adult literature, whether it was realistic fiction, historical fiction, fantasy, I taught all of the genres. And um, my students would have to read um, examples from all the genres. I even taught adult books for young adults and I taught picture books for young adults because there's some wonderful picture books <laughs> well. So, but graphic novels kind of grew into its own. And I, mean, I actually had, had a textbook that they had to read, which was written, which was a graphic novel. And um, so it, it, just, it just really resonates that some things that um, are part of all of our common experience really work well in a graphic format. Um. Do you, do you think um, with the graphic novel medium, because obviously you've been a librarian and involved in literature for a long time, so you would have seen graphic novels slowly coming in to become more acceptable? Because um, for a long time they, they were they were quite, well, they were quite like, fr- yeah, frowned upon, I think. Yeah. Um, and it was things like Mouse, which pushed in mm-hmm. to become, Mouse was obviously a bestseller. And, but do you think it's become more, as it's become more of an acceptable medium, do you think that actually there's more room for that with more nonfiction stories? But, um, and also just what were the views on, on sort of people in your profession as graphic novels are becoming more acceptable? I think that um, it took a while and we still have a lot of work to do with educators. There's yeah. still a lot of um, English teachers. There's still a lot of, um, of teachers at the secondary level, the middle and high school teachers who think, if kids are reading graphic novels, they're not really reading. Yeah. Um, but, um, which I just find just incredible because, you know, to be able to integrate image and story and text and get meaning is such a, a skill level. You know? yes. Yes. I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm, I'm a person who was older. And when I first started reading graphic novels, I would read the entire book and realize I hadn't looked at the pictures. <laughs> I was so oriented that I would just read text mm-hmm. and then I have to go back and try to put the things together and then I watch young people just read them together like it was happening on all all things were firing and I just think that's a great skill level I think um, um, informational books and nonfiction books are perfect for um, a graphic treatment because I think that um, you know, when you're when you're learning information or you're getting information or you're learning about someone's life, you know, you get a fuller picture, so to speak, no pun intended, when you do have image as well as text. Um, I remember going to hear um, Scott Westerfeld, um, who's a YA writer, and he reminds us, you know, adult books used to have illustrations. <laughs> you know, the, the, and he told the story of uh, Sherlock Holmes you know, the deer stalker that we always associate with Sherlock Holmes, the hat. Yeah. That, yeah. That's written nowhere in Arthur Conan Doyle. That was a drawing 
from the illustrator, from the, from the versions that everyone read. And so we have this, this image of who Sherlock Holmes is based on an image that was in an adult book. Adult books used to have illustrations. And we kind of got away from that. You know, when you think about Dickens, Christmas Carol was the first was first published. It had illustrations. And so we need to recognize that we haven't lost anything mm-hmm. by adding, adding images. We've enhanced it. And um, we, it should be encouraged. And um, so hopefully the U.S. is catching up with the rest of the world because I understand, you know, for a big chunk of time, we had a lot of uh, translated um, graphic novels because other countries had more graphic novels than, than the U.S. had or it was, right. you know, they were more prevalent. And so not just in, from Asia, but from Europe and other, you know, we just, they, we just didn't have them here. So now we're starting to see more more imprints, um, you know, we're starting to see them for younger kids as well. Um, I think it's really great that we're seeing it. Now we see this explosion of books that were already popular now getting a graphic treatment. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a great, I think it's important. I really do. We live in a visual world that's not gonna change. Right. We need to have all of those stories. I think you're right actually, it just reminded me when I was a kid, um, used to read and they're considered classics now really yes. like Roald Dahl books like um and Quinton Blake would put yep. small illustrations throughout the books but yeah they seem to even kids books have sort of moved away from that but you know I used to love reading his books with the small illustrations dotted uh, but they were you know it wasn't every page but dotted throughout the book exactly. there'd, be a, there'd be enough to help children with reading about you know say for instance like the twits or something and then you mm-hmm. you'd see a picture of the twits throughout the book or whatever and it was but I guess it was done to strengthen the, the writer, um, but also to make it more engaging for the children that were reading those books. Um, yes. Yeah, I can't imagine Matilda without the the images of, you know, as the story progresses, like, oh man, I, I didn't even think about that before that that they do, ha- it's, I mean, it's not considered a picture book, so to speak, but no. yeah, definitely there are pictures in the book. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, and I, I think I have, um, a reprint of a, a Pride and Prejudice that is, has illustrations in it. So, I mean, this is not anything, you know, but we, we, you know, we get to this point, oh, well, we don't, you know, if we give people pictures, somehow or another, it's a crutch. Mm-hmm. No, it's not a crutch. It is a, a wonderful enhancement. And, um, you know, I think it's it's really important. And I've another book that I read recently was a, a a graphic novel about the Japanese internment camps. Mm-hmm. I think it's George Takei. Oh, George Takei, yes. Uh... Takei, Takei. Um, his, his, um, his graphic novel about, about his, his experience. Um, being they called the us the enemy, I think. They call us the enemy, yeah, yeah. And I think so, I think um, nonfiction really is a, a great way to, to engage kids uh, by using graphic novels to tell those stories. Yeah, we we had said on our podcast with Mouse, like, there's no way that book gets made if it is not illustrated with something that is non-human, because there's no way that you could tell a story as awful as the Holocaust without doing something to kind of tamp down the the horror aspect of it. Uh, but the message still completely came across. It was probably to me that was the hardest one that we've read so far. Um, it was it was big book it had tons and tons of pictures in addition to lots and lots of text but reading the book um was an experience all by itself because 
you know, halfway through the book, you have gotten to the point now where you don't even really see mice and cats and pigs anymore. You you actually see like Jews and Germans and Polish people and and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I I always say, well, I mean, of course, we're we're nerdy, so we're totally into all kinds of picture books and graphic novels and comics here. Um, but it just I, I I wish people would get away from saying that that's childish. Yeah, there is there is a New York Times article. I think it's in today's paper about um, you know. Do not, it, it is really appropriate to keep kids reading picture books and adults should read picture books too. And I had just sent a, a message to someone and said, you know, some of the best art um, is to be found in children's picture books mm -hmm. um, and, and some of the best writing. And because you have to distill that language in such a way that it's accessible and that it gets your point across. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really key to um, to have make sure that you have both of those things going on at the same time, and I think um, that's you know getting back to to March. I think that's probably why John Lewis chose that format as well, um, because he knew that he needed to have some kind of way um, beyond just the story. He needed to have that visual image mm -hmm. so that it's, it would be seared in their in their brains you know, to see the pictures, yeah. um, to recognize what was going on, the struggle, um, especially when you, that section about the sit-ins mm -hmm. and um, what, they're, what they're having to go through. Right. I think that it comes across in such a dynamic fashion because you do have the, um, the images as well as the text. Yeah. Uh, well, because he also has a memoir. Um... Oh, he has a couple. Yeah, good, good trouble. <laughs> he, has, he has that one. He has Walking with the Wind. Mm -hmm. um, he has a picture book that he wrote, Preaching to the Chickens, <laughs> illustrated by E.B. Lewis. It's a great picture book. Um, so he's done a number. Of, he's, he's been really good about getting his story out there and sharing mm -hmm. it. Um, what did you both think about the art, by the way, actually, like in, the, in this book? I like the art. I like the, um, I like the black and white. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I just think that there's a, it's like black and white photos, you know, it has a certain yeah. kind of sharpness and, you know, kind of focuses your, your eye on certain aspects of, uh, of the image. So I like the, I like the art a lot. And I like the way that they did different size panels. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes you would go, you know, for a few panels with just was not really using a bubble and other times you would use kind of a, a line text. So I liked the way they had the variety in the illustrations. And um, so I thought that, that that was another reason it worked extremely well. And also there was still an old fashioned quality about it so yeah. that you felt that it, it was of the time. Right, yeah. it does feel authentic to me. And there's so much detailing in everything that Nate drew in this book. Yes. The, the, everyone has unique facial features there aren't people right. where it's like that looks like the same guy from three pages ago um i mean there's detailing in in the shadows there's detailing yeah. in the shading i i was surprised at the amount of detail for something that was just in black and white and i i think it's because the the subject matter is something that i'm very familiar with that it maybe as i was reading it i you know, I already had the, the colors in my head. So it's easier to kind of look at this and, and put my own kind of perception onto it. 
but I love the art in here. It's it's so crisp and again, it's so detailed. And even like even on pages where the whole page is sort of oh sorry, mm-hmm. you can't see it. The whole page is black. But like to there's you can still see like shoelaces and buttons on shirts. It's it's incredible. I, I love the art in this book. I think of all the black and white stories that we've read this one is probably my my favorite because it never feels cumbersome and i i never get bored Mm -hmm. i've heard um nate speak about it and and it was a hell of a lot of work i believe it um and uh, i think i think he was about wore down by the time (laughs) and the books got progressively bigger yes the third book is twice the size of the first one exactly and you know he did all that art and i've heard him speak a couple of times and i think he was about worn out by the time they got to March 3 because mm-hmm. it did have that level of detail. There's a couple of um, bits in the book I'll shout out in terms of the art. So I love the double page spread of t- page 10 and 11 that has the word March but like in the sky. Um, that yeah. was really striking to me. Um, but I love how the art is changed along with the text throughout the book. So there's a scene um, uh, where he's sitting there and uh, reading the bible and he's got a a verse which is actually written across his body um behold the lamb of god uh which taketh away the sin of the world but it's sort of etched across his whole body but they actually he says as well um by the time i was five i could read it by myself and one phrase struck with me strongly um but i thought it was brilliant how because it was so stuck with him so strongly the artist um actually wrote it across his whole body so I yeah. thought that was quite a unique take on it was so so symbolic that it was mm-hmm. so so stuck with him that they wrote it across his body. Um and it's just throughout the throughout the book as well, like you said about how they changed the book, the format, you know, like with panels and not panels. There's like one whole page which is completely white with just the bus on it. Um yes. and yeah. I thought that was really striking as well. Uh there's some really sort of other key moments, like you know, like where um there's a whole page where it's completely black and he's like, his words liberated me. Uh, I thought this is it, this is the way out. And and I thought that was really striking where the words are in white. So I thought the art was just used with such great effect. Mm-hmm. And the, the black and white throughout the book, it, it was brilliant. The shading, you know, from the darkness to the, to the, you know, to the complete whitest pages were just used so well. Um, and this book, I think to tell a story like this, um, the, it was a really fantastic medium to me. Like, you know, I, I'm happy to read a novel or a graphic novel but because i guess probably the, the geek in me i would probably rather pick up a graphic novel than a book um <laughs> so to pick up something like this like this powerful story in this format was probably like you i mean i'm not a child but like well, yeah um, but, but that's the thing like it's it doesn't have to be for kids right no, no, right. yeah so it's a format that i enjoy as more of a preference to novels um so it was a way of john lewis Burnett, like you just said it was a way of him being able to get the, his story out mm-hmm. in a different in a different way so. so do you think that that means he could reach people that he wouldn't normally reach because it's exactly. in a format that is not quote unquote normal i think that's exactly why i think that's why it resonated um with him to do especially like i said he had seen that that comic about dr king he knew what an impact that it had um i think he knew that he wanted to reach um more people i forget it was some astronomical number of visits that they did in conjunction with the series. Um, you know, and he still had a day job. He was a congressman. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was a, and he was he was a working congressman. He really, you know, he was on the floor. He was giving yeah. speeches. He was he was there for votes. And um, he was 
really in the last few years of his life, he was out there telling that story and encouraging other people to get involved. That whole idea of good trouble and that you have to you see something, you have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. That was always, it wasn't just, I'm going to tell you what I did. It was, you can do this. Right. You can do this. It may look hard. It may be difficult, but you can do this. You have to do this. And I think that passion that he had um, and that sense of belief that young people, um, I remember him talking about um, you know, Black Lives Matter and him being so encouraged by the multinational, multiracial, multiethnic mm-hmm. uh, involvement in that movement. He felt like it was a mirror or an echo of what had happened um, when he was involved with the Freedom Rides and when he was involved in the efforts with SNCC. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I think that is why he chose that format spoke to him because he knew it could reach people that a regular narrative might not. Right. Now, you had just mentioned um, that he could see the parallels and I could not help but think about. So when this when this first book opens, um, we'd said it at the beginning of this episode, yeah. It opens with him in his office in the Capitol, in the U.S., in, in the uh, House of Representatives. Um, and I couldn't help but think of January 6, 2021, where we had an angry mob storm the Capitol, deface federal property, break into senators and uh, representative offices. And to watch the defiling of a federal building with that much history behind it like that by our own citizens was maddening um it, and it was just so infuriating to see and i think with, with a lot of things with with this book and you know with the civil rights movement it's like you can't help but notice the parallels like you can't help but see the same kinds of things happening again and again the same kinds of resistance happening the same kinds of force being applied to the resistance happening um and it's just you know, you hate to say it, but it's just, is it, are we doing just more of the same? Is, are, are, are we continuing to go in these same circles where uh, we, we, we were saying this before we started recording, where it's kind of like for every three steps you take forward, you know, you get knocked one step back. So you're constantly doing this whole shuffle thing. I think that's, I mean, I think that's been the history of this country um, is that, and it, the, the uh, resistance to change morphs. It changed, you know, when when you when it's no longer and I think I said in the, the comments I wrote, um, I remember when the local paper or the job announcements were divided by race. Well, now you can't do that. But now I understand that there have been studies that if you have a black sounding name, you don't get a callback mm-hmm. for a job interview. So you know it, you you can get you can get close enough to get an application, and you don't have to look for the the colored, that's what they were called, um, want ads, but there are other barriers right. to people. So I think what really we take from a life like John Lewis's is you don't stop. You figure out ways and you don't, it's very hard not to get discouraged. You know, when you think about that, many of the people who defiled the Capitol were just allowed to walk out. Yes. And this was the same city that hundreds of people had been arrested. Yep. You know, in protests at Black Lives Matter. And tear gassed. And tear gassed, Mm -hmm. you know, in in a park. 
and um, they were not defiling property and they, right. were, they were just there. So I think that there's this, this, the lesson that comes out is that you cannot assume that if you make, if you get one thing done, right. that you can settle back on your laurels, that it's a constant. And we have to find ways to gird each other up because I think that message would be discouraging to some people. It would feel like, gee, well, when do I get to just play? When, yes. do I, <laughs> when do I get to just veg out, play my video games? Well, you know, we have to figure out ways that, you know, you get a break, but other people have to keep going. Mm-hmm. And that we just, we, we trade, we, you know, we spell each other because um, this, is a, this, is, this is for the long haul. And um, that's what John Lewis understood. That's, yeah. what he, that's what he was talking at the end of his life at 80 years old. You know, he was, he was still talking about that. And that's one of the things that he had mentioned when they were doing the sit-ins, when they were sort of doing the practice runs where they would, they would say these ugly, awful things to each other. But he was like, we had to, we had to do it in shifts and it was painful and it hurt just as much to hear it as it did to say it, but we did it and we did the training and, you know, we built ourselves up because we knew that we couldn't falter when it mattered. And I thought that was such an important part of the book because as I said earlier, um, people need to understand that people worked really hard. They didn't just show up at a counter and say, I'm going to sit here for, you know, a cup of coffee until they drag me out. People right. trained. People had workshops. People had uh, people who came in and, and really were um, facilitators and helped them to understand what was going to happen and to prepare, that they had a strategy mm-hmm. and they thought about it and they planned it because they knew that it wasn't, you know, you had to, that was the way you had to approach it. You couldn't just show up. You had to be prepared. And that's what comes across in in March was how hard they worked behind the scenes in addition to what they went through um, once they were out there facing, you know, mobs or facing police or whatever. And I think you see that from the very beginning in this book, because again, with the practice that he put in with the chickens and with the, with the way that he, if, if the chickens were sleeping, then he would drag his siblings into it and, and make them do it. Like he was always, always organizing and always planning something. Um, and I think that's, an, I mean, it's incredible. It's literally a lifelong fight. Yes. And I think, you know, he was really, he was a joyful man too. I mean, he, we, the day he was awarded or received all these honors for March 3, we were in Atlanta. The American Library Association was meeting in Atlanta and he actually came to the announcements. And we, I mean, we could barely take a step because everybody wanted to, hug him. <laughs> everybody wanted to just wrap their arms around him. And I was saying to someone earlier today, it felt like for the years between March and March 3, he belonged to the children's book world and we mm-hmm. just we embraced him and um because we knew that this whole series was really something special did, did either of you have a favorite moment in the line from the book you know i don't have a favorite line i think my favorite um moment from the book was the whole thing with him and dr king and how you know he was so impressed with dr king and for Dr. King to recognize him as, oh, are you the boy from Troy? Um, mm-hmm. I think that was such a lift for him to um, know that um, Dr. King recognized him and recognized his passion. Um, I thought that their connection was, um, was really very special. 
And his, his, it really made him even more determined, I think, to continue the work that he did. So I think that was when I saw him um, in that way. And I love all the images of him with his backpack, uh-huh. um, you know, and his trench coat. You know, he was always prepared to, for whatever he was going to face. And I loved all of those images. I think uh, one of my favorite moments, it's a silly moment, but it's uh, when he when he finally understood the distinction between his chickens and every other chicken. chicken. <laughs> yes, when he when he could not eat the chickens on his own farm, but when he was up in Ohio, he said he ate all that chicken on that plate. Oh. That made me laugh so hard. <laughs> and, he, and he really had, he was connected. He felt like he had a connection to right. Chickens because not just not only was he preaching to them, he was taking care of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah I do you know the chicken thing was probably one of my favorite parts. <laughs> like, um, uh, yeah, I will read this line. It's like no one else could tell those chickens apart, and no one, no one cared to. Yeah. I, 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 I loved, I loved how like he, he used to sort of kick off with his parents about not um, wanting to eat the chickens because mm-hmm. he formed attachments with him and like which you is said, hilarious coming from a poor family because like what of course when i was growing up my grandmother used to tell us like you don't have any wants this is what right. we're having for dinner and if you don't want it you don't eat it period that's just how this works so i thought that was really funny too where he was like i'm not gonna eat that and they're like well you're not gonna eat that's right <laughs> um i don't know like i i was gonna say like reading this book because i guess i'm coming from a completely different perspective from both of you I'm a white guy living in England and personally have never really experienced racism and to be able to sit down and read this. The only thing I probably would say is in terms of my connection with racism is my mum is Irish and um, when she first moved to England from Ireland, so both of her parents are from, well, my my nan was from Dublin and my granddad was from Northern Ireland and they both came here and my mum always tells me when she first came here, there'd be signs on, on like say hotels and stuff. And it would say no blacks, uh, no Asians and definitely no Irish. And my mom would say like how, I guess a lot's changed because um, Irish obviously are, are, are accepted now. Um, and my wife's black and the level of racism in this country is not the same as from what I can see and hear in America. Um, so to sit down and read something like this, it has given me, I'm always aware of what goes on in America. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've obviously keep up to date. I mean, Jasmine, we obviously speak all the time. But, um, but to read something like this and see what happened back then and with the civil rights movement, it was, I guess, shocking is probably the only word really to describe it. Just reading just, you know, from the scenes of how they had to teach themselves the, the non-violent practices to prepare themselves for those sit-ins. Um, and I actually did go and listen to a podcast with John Lewis, um, an Oprah Winfrey one for half an hour, and he talked about it himself, just how brutal it was about how they got spat on and had hot coffee poured on them. And, and that I just, I just, yeah, it really was just horrendous for me to hear and almost unimaginable because I know, I guess, I, I, I'm never likely to ever go through that myself or, or have any real connection with it other than reading and hearing about it from other people. Um, so it's just, I don't know, for me, really quite sad. So, and, but, but equally brave and strong for them to know they had to walk into that situation and they knew what was going to happen. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think it was really, because of course that's the, the cover, the cover yeah. story of the cover illustration um, in terms oh, okay. of the counter. Yeah. And it was kind of like starting at the most basic human dignity. 
mm-hmm. that you could sit down in a place that would take your money for other things, mm-hmm. but wouldn't let you have a cup of coffee or wouldn't let you have a hamburger. And um, I think that starting there is something that is another reason it resonates because everyone can understand that. Everyone can understand wanting to just have the basics. Be treated fairly. Be treated yeah, be treated fairly. Yeah. The same mm-hmm. way that other people can walk up to a counter. And I think that that's, um, you know, really indicative of how they started and how they were able to build the movement because they did start at such a basic level. And it also showed that the, the racism was at all levels, even the most basic. So, you know, that was that was really kind of a key part of the book as well. The whole sit-in thing uh, reminded me of my grandmother when, when I was really young, I want to say I was probably like four or five. She used to take me into town, into town with her uh, um, because she used to do like banking and she would do like all of her banking and shopping at Woolworth, which we still had Woolworth at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And she used to let me get French fries at Woolworth and we always sat at the counter and it made me so mad when I was a kid because I wanted to sit in a booth. I just wanted to sit in the booth and eat my French fries and then go back home. Um, But she never, ever wanted to sit in a booth. And every single time we went to Woolworth, she sat us at that counter. And of course, at the time, I had no idea. I didn't understand the significance of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, you know, the more I got into the the history of the civil rights and that kind of thing and and seeing it here, it just it, it makes me wish I could go back in time to when she was still around and like talk to her about the significance of it. But it's, it's kind of one of those things where it, it's happening and you don't realize that it's happening, but she never, ever, ever forgot it. So oh, I don't, okay. I, yeah, I, I always thought that that, that that story kind of, it makes me like, I, it, I, you know, it makes me kind of sad because like, I don't, I, I don't get to hear her version of it, but yeah, it, obviously it stuck with her. Cause like I said, never, she never let us sit in a booth. We always sat at the counter. <laughs> but I think that's, that's what we meant when we first started talking about planting seeds. Mm-hmm. You know, you now have, even though you can't talk to her more deeply about it, you have that memory yeah. and you have that under, now you have that understanding. And that's what I think adults who care about young people hope that that will happen when they read something like this was that even if they don't get it all at the time, you come into you it in your own time, come into it at your own time, you, you connect the dots mm-hmm. when you get more information, you connect it to what you've read about or what you've seen. And I think that's what makes a book like this so valuable. Um, and you know, some people might just read it because it is in a comic format. Um, but there will be there will be um, ideas and there will be things that will come out that will connect, even if they're not even aware of that. So um, I think that all of it is a is a part of the growing process. And uh, I think that's one of the values of it. Well, I think we have taken up enough of your time, Deborah. Thank you so much for being with us for this special, special book. Well, this was really so much fun. I was really happy to be able to read it again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I read it when it first came out. Um, so it was fun. I did want to just pick your brains, like, cause obviously with your knowledge and literature and um, obviously rec- you said earlier about recommending people stuff, like, um, if someone enjoyed March, would you? Is there other graphic novels or books that you might recommend for someone to pick up if they enjoyed this? Um, yes, there is a there is a book by Dan Brown about Katrina. Oh, I what I'll do is I'll send you an email with some okay. suggestions. 
Um, I know that I've used that one. Um, and that was also another award-winning one. I mentioned the George Takai book. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that is one that I would recommend. Um, there's actually, I mean, I guess, you know, maybe they, people would want to take a look at it, but there was actually a graphic novel about the 9-11 attack. Okay. Really? In terms of, yeah, um, the New York Times published it. And there was a lot of controversy because, you know, that we still had that attitude that it couldn't be serious. Uh-huh. And there were too many people had died. And how dare you do a comic book about, but that was how we experienced it. We, mm-hmm. all, we all saw the news and we all saw the planes. So those are the kinds of things that I think really work well in a graphic format. But I will be glad to send a few more suggestions um, um, on, on to Jasmine and uh, we can share them with, with folks who listen to the podcast, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, that'd be pretty good. I'd love to. You know, I, I'm thinking, I, of course, when you said that, I immediately thought of lots of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I can definitely um, share that with you. Oh, and well, that's fiction too. American Born Chinese is uh, is one of my favorites. Gene um, Yang, Gene Yuan Yang is just an incredible um, graphic novel creator and has done a number of things. Um, so yeah, I can definitely send some suggestions. I believe Gene, yeah, he writes for DC, boxer, I think. Yeah, he's even done one on the Boxer Rebellion, the Boxer Rebellion, two volumes. Mm-hmm. Um, about the, the whole British and uh, Chinese uh, wars, the opium wars, so to speak. Mm. So yeah, so there, there are quite a few um, really good ones. And, and yourself, I know like you're, from what Jasmine tells me, involved in another podcast, but have you, would you want to tell us a little bit about um, where people can find you online and that kind of thing? Uh, well, I'm, um, I'm at, uh, on Twitter a lot, too much. Um, <laughs> uh, Shackle52 because I was a huge Harry Potter fan. And Shackle <laughs> was uh, the only, um, was, the, was the Black Auror. Um, so I'm, I'm Shackle52, and you can find me on Twitter. And um, so, you know, glad to engage with folks there. Deborah's also a huge tennis fan. That's another reason that we get along well. <laughs> we, we, we met each other through tennis Twitter, so. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I, I was one of the ones over in Geneva with the Labor Cup with, with Roger, you know. We, yeah. It was like the hot, hot point of my life. <laughs> Roger Federer playing Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. And um, our next book club episode, we are going to take a month off. Our next book club is going to be in April. Uh, for our next Late to the Party book club, we are headed to the cyberpunk world of Neo-Tokyo as we take on Akira Volume 1. Mm-hmm. So be sure to check us out in April for that. You can also follow us on social media. We are Geeks Unleashed everywhere, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Google, Apple, Spotify, tune in. We are everywhere. So be sure to give us a five-star review and tell your geeky friends about us. Thank you very much for listening. And thanks, Deborah, for joining us. Thank you so much. Really my pleasure. Enjoyed it.